The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Welcome to the China Sports Insider Podcast, today on a jam-packed show. What is going on with the International Ice Hockey Federation? China gets its first F1 driver. The Women's Tennis Association wants some answers from China. What can we expect? And we interview China football expert Rowan Simons. Mark, how are you? I am well. Um, still, uh, as last week, uh, in my quarantine isolation but excited to be getting out um, any day now and then i'll have another week in shanghai before hopefully coming back to beijing as long as there aren't any more cases in which case i'm stuck here for a little longer well let's hope that doesn't happen let's hope that we get you back in beijing soon okay the first story mark i don't i don't even know where to start with this because this is extremely confusing to me so last week as we talked about here luke tardiff the new president of the International Ice Hockey Federation, said unequivocally China would compete at the Olympics. Here's exactly what he said. Let me read this to you. To be clear, the WIHF is not going to remove the Chinese team from the Olympic Games. The status of the men's national team as a host nation participant in the Olympic Ice Hockey Tournament was confirmed by Congress and remains unchanged. Today, Tardif told... Canada Sportsnet, I didn't want to do a diplomatic earthquake alone just coming as the new president. And then he said, Norway is ready. Mark, I have one question for you. What? <laughs> um, hi, this has been ridiculous. I first started writing about this in May of this year, and the whole thing has been on again, off again so many times. We, I mean, like we thought it was finally done and dusted and we were just waiting for the Chinese Olympic roster to be released, which is supposed to be any day now. And now they're saying, no, they're going to make another decision on November 25th. So what is happening this week? Um, and as of uh, Wednesday is when we're recording this week. Tonight, there is the second of two games in Russia that's being evaluated by some officials from the IIHF. And based on that, they will either decide that China 
can play and if they can, which of the Chinese players are going to be eligible. And that's a whole big thing because some of those players have previously represented uh, other countries. Some of those players uh, haven't quite played with the Chinese team for long enough. So there's going to need to be a little bit of easing of the eligibility requirements. But more dramatically, if they decide they are not up to the standard necessary, they're going to kick them out and Norway is in. Tardif said Norway stands ready. I mean, that is that is a worrying statement uh, from the Chinese side, um, if, if, if you're watching this. In Kunlun Redstar's first game, they came down from 4-0 to tie the game. So they tied the game and they lost in overtime. Hardly a worrying sort of result, in, in my opinion. Yeah, the first of the two games that are you know being evaluated in Russia this week. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's right. I mean, what what are they going to find? What information are they going to get from from the second game that they don't already have? Uh, whether they win, whether they lose, you know, like it's not going to drastically change the bigger picture. We know who the players are um, who who are eligible. They either need to decide whether they're going to give them passports or not, and then they need to decide is that team going to embarrass them and, and and are they prepared to live with the results these are questions that should have been answered months and months and months ago if not years ago but hey hey here we are and it's three months to go and we still don't know what's happening it's ridiculous so the question i had was i mean what what could have happened in the last week to to sway tardif i mean there was been a bunch of stories in international media could that have swayed him I think it's, I mean, actually, I, I mean, I've had some inquiries. I spoke to to Canadian television last week. There's been some interest from, from particularly from North America. They're beginning to hone in on the Olympics. And, and this story is now finally on their radar. Um, the one thing I think that that's changed, and we talked about this last week, Tardif is the new guy in town. So he can basically, he still has a little bit of time where he can say, this was not a decision made on my watch. I think it's wrong. Let's reverse decision before it's too late. And, you know, he can kind of bring some change as the new regime. So we can still dump it on on the previous guy, René Fazel, who, who was kind of leading the uh, IIHF previously. Now, it sounds like Tardif has much better links with, with Norway and Fazel had better links <laughs> with China. Again, not a, not, a, not a great situation if you're a, a Chinese hockey fan and you want to see the men's team in. And at this point, we do. Like, of course we do. Like, we know they're not going to do well, and it's going to be a bit of a mess. But it would be so unfair after everything that's the, the back and forth have gone through to kick them out now with less than three months to go. Yeah. So on that note, so you were like as you mentioned, you were on the National, which is the the national nightly news program on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, you were you were great, by the way. So it was a piece on Kunlun Red Star and the mostly heritage players that are going to be on China's team, and this this aired. Just just a few hours ago, by the way. So we're, we're taping on Wednesday afternoon of uh, China time. And you could tell that the players there still seem to think that China would be at the Olympics. Beyond anything else, it just seems cruel. So just just make a decision. Get this over with. Pull the band-aid yeah. off. This is, this is like, this is a staggering development. And there have been a lot this year. But I, I was talking to members of the team like yesterday uh, – people working with the team and they're basically just like well we know everything apart from just a couple of details there's a couple of decisions that need to be made on some of the players because of eligibility but basically we're, we're ready to go we're, we're just ironing out the final you know names on the roster now suddenly it's like uh what roster <laughs> so anyway november 25th is is d-day again until the next one but um that's the <laughs> that's the latest that we have <laughs> can we talk about something that makes me feel a little less irked Yes. Because I am yes, yes. Okay. 
China has its first F1 driver. His name is Zhou Guanyu, and, he, and here's his message on Xinhua, on Xinhua News. Hi guys, it's Guanyu here. I'm super honored to become the Formula One driver for Alfa Romeo Racing Orland team. Formula One is always my dream since I was a child. You know, I've been pushing so hard together with my team, my crew, all the time, try to, you know, push over the limit, try to reach that goal, and I'm just so thankful become true so very thanks for all the guys who support me all the way through my journey so far next year is going to be a super difficult and also important year for me so my plan my target will be try to learn as much as i could not just with the team also with my ex very good experienced teammate Valtteri Bottas and i just hope you know to put some great results on the table in the in the next year and uh, make sure you guys follow me all the races next year see you guys on track soon so, Mark, who is Joe Guanyu and, and why is this a big deal? Well, simply put, he is a future superstar. I, I honestly believe that. Um, I had the privilege to wow. commentate on the uh, Asian F3 Championship earlier this year, which he won. Uh, and they had uh, they had five race weekends, uh, basically back to back, compounded into a, into a month long thing uh, in, in the Middle East because of travel restrictions. That's where a lot of the racing was happening. And this guy is great. Not only is he he good on the track, uh, but he's just a delight to 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 interview and so on and and, and off the track. You could make a case that you know he's not the best driver uh, in the wings. There's another guy, um, uh, Piastri, in, in Formula Two, who's currently leading the Formula Two championships. Joe Guanyu is is second at the moment. Maybe Piastri is going to be a little bit miffed that he's not getting this seat. Um, but this is not a question of, you know, it's Chinese money buying the seats, as we've seen many uh, drivers at the back of the grid in F1 happening before. So he is a legit talent. He's been racing in Europe uh, since his, his um, middle teenage years, and he has performed at every level. So I'm fantastically excited to see um, him get the seat. So he was with the Alpine team, formerly the Renault team with uh, um, Fernando Alonso as a um, sort of development driver this year. And the, the worry was that there wasn't going to be a seat for him in this team. So what has happened is he's switching over to Alfa Romeo. So he's cut all ties with Alpine. So that is why this has opened up. But it's good for them. It's good for the sport. It's, I have to say that there is a bit of a disappointment. They've already said that the, um, the, the Chinese Grand Prix in 2022 will not, will not happen because of COVID. But on the plus side, they have extended the, uh, the Chinese F1 deal until 2025. So he will get the chance to race in his, his, in his home Grand Prix. In the early, you know, 2005 to 2010, that kind of golden period, um, a lot of fans came to Shanghai to, and to, to, to watch the Grand Prix, and it kind of tailed off a little bit. But hopefully this can get it right back going. It's great for the sponsors. It, it's, like I said, I'm, I'm super happy, and, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. So, so in that message, Joe mentioned that, you know, next year is going to be a, a, a hard year for him. Um, what do we know about this new team? Can we, what, what kind of results can we expect next year? Look, I mean, the fact that he is, is got a seat on, on the grid is, is, Impressive and stuff. He's racing alongside Valtteri Bottas, who is uh, Lewis Hamilton's teammate right now at Mercedes. So that's the kind of caliber of of driver he is. He's going to be up against. Be very, very interesting to see how he compares. Um, obviously, Hamilton is is very much the leading driver, and and uh, um, you know Joe will be expected to play sort of the backup role. But of course, there's always battles within a team as well. He's not going to be winning races. He's not going to be winning the titles anytime soon. But if he can perform and if he can kind of outperform what that car is expected to do, 
then who knows what could happen in a few years. Um, F1, of course, is, is so much about the team. Um, but hey, he's got a seat uh, and that's fantastic. This is this is a huge we've we've been waiting for this moment for for decades. Big news in the tennis world this week. What is going on, Mark? Well, a little under two weeks ago, uh, Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai made some very serious allegations about a former Chinese leader on Weibo. Now, the post was quickly deleted uh, and we hadn't really heard anything since. Now, the Daily Mail, of all people, not my favorite newspaper, they'd wrote a story saying, where is Peng Shuai? Why haven't we heard from her? And I was like, what on earth are you thinking when you, you know, after news like this, she's not going to be shouting from the rooftops. <laughs> um, but I, I think what this piece did is that it actually, a lot of tennis players started to say, hey, what's what's going on? Why haven't we heard from her? And we've had some statements from the WTA, that's the Women's Tennis Association, the Men's Tour, which is the ATP, and then a lot of current and former players, Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King, Chris Evert, Novak Djokovic, they've all been talking about this. And, and Naomi Osaka as well today. Yeah, I mean, th- this is really like everyone is talking about this story in, in the tennis world. Now, again, as I said, it's no surprise that, uh, that we haven't heard from her. Do we know where she is? Well, there's there's rumors flying about nothing that we can substantiate here. Um but what I think is most interesting is that the WTA, um, obviously Peng's main tour. Now, it should be said, she, she hasn't played for a while and she's basically retired because she's had some pretty serious injuries and she's mid-30s. But she's still well-known and liked by all the people on the tour. And the tour has basically said, we need answers from China. Can you guarantee you know, her safety? What's going on? We need an investigation into this. They didn't stop there. They said, we are going into this with our eyes open. I'm paraphrasing here. But basically, we we are aware of, of what this might do to our business by effectively calling China out on this. Um, and we're prepared to, to effectively not have tennis tournaments in China. Now, in some sports, you'd be like, well, that's okay. In tennis, like half the year is in China. Not quite, but 11 tournaments. So this is huge. Including the WTA finals in Shenzhen. Yes. Yeah, the biggest event of the year outside the Grand Slams, but the season-ending finale. When that was announced in partnership with a, a real estate developer called Gemdale, that was um, the richest tournament in the world, men's or women's. It was like absolutely, absolutely crazy. $14 million, which was more than the men's were getting for their season-ending uh, ATP finals. You know, in the last couple of years, of course, WTA hasn't come to China at all. And I and I mean, are they sort of realizing that there is life outside of China? I think that's exactly right. You know, two years ago, I I think they were so embedded in the fabric of of of, of China with their tour, given those eleven tournaments. But having you know, with China still at COVID zero and basically canceling all international sports events, the rest of the sports world has moved on. So the WTA has learnt to live without China. And again, I'm not going to speculate whether they would have put this statement out, you know, a year ago, two years ago, um, and they're doing it differently. But I think it's much easier from a business perspective to think, you know what, we can have other tournaments, we can fill the calendar, and we're not not done. If, If China decides it really doesn't like the things that we're saying then you know what? Life is still going to go on. Mark, what happens next? Well, so far, there's been no reaction from the Chinese side. Um, it, it's kind of unclear the, who, who exactly the WTA is, is expecting a response from. It came up at the foreign ministry press conference, and, and the response there was that it's not a diplomatic matter, so no real response. The one thing I want to say about this is it, there's parallels to what happened with the NBA, 
when the Daryl Morey tweet devastated their 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 business in in China two years ago. The difference there is that that was a huge story in China. Everyone was talking about that, and and a lot of anti NBA feelings came from Chinese basketball fans. The difference here is that this. Uh, this story has been completely eradicated from Chinese media. No one's talking about it. So so the vast majority of people don't know that it's happening. So that's the big difference. And until China's ready to host sports events again, there's no real decision that needs to be made. So I, I think, you know, 2022 is already looking tough for, for, for tournaments in China. Um, and then maybe things will have died down. I mean, again, too early to say, but I'm not... An, expecting we're going to hear either from Pang or from the Chinese side um, anytime soon. Okay, Mark, some late-breaking news as we were sleeping last night. What happened? Well, yeah, at about 1.30 a.m. Uh, Wednesday night's China time, the, um, the Chinese state media, uh, the English-language channel CGTN, tweeted out what they said was a statement from Peng Shui to the WTA CEO basically saying, don't worry about me. Uh, I'm fine. If you're going to speak about me in, in, in the future, please check with me first. And it was just bizarre. Uh, not a single person um, believes that this is from Bang. Um, so this has only raised more concern f- for her safety. And not only that, it's really catapulted the story uh, onto the front pages. I mean, this was this is when I woke up this morning. This was on the, uh, the front, the top story on the homepage of the BBC for the international site there. I've had um, people message me from all over the world about this story, and they wouldn't have heard about it uh, unless there was, you know, without this sort of ham-fisted attempt at, at effectively what looks like a cover-up. But you know, that's that's the the universal view of what everyone is 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 reading into to what this means. Well, I woke up this morning really, really early, just way too early, and this was basically my my twitter feed uh was uh was all about peng shui it's not very often when a china sports story goes truly truly mainstream and i think this is one of the rare examples and so you know if that attempt at at trying to calm the situation or respond of course this has not been in chinese media it's, it's fully censored within china this was on twitter which is blocked as as everyone knows in china so this is on the, on the english language feed only uh of course who knows? I mean, there's certainly more to come from this story, that's for sure. Mark, you, you teed this up last week. Uh, but, you know, the Chinese men's national football team played two qualifiers this past week. Um, to, to have a chance to qualify, they really needed wins. Instead, they earned a, a pair of 1-1 draws against Oman and against Australia. Uh, you watched the games. What, what did you think? Yeah, well, slightly against my my. Better nature. I did stay up to, to watch the game. God, the, it was so the, late. The game can last can night. I just say these games started at eleven p.m. That's way past my bedtime. This is this is <laughs> late. It's also because um, it, it's also because it's ridiculously hot in the Middle East where they're playing. So they deliberately mm. uh, have very very late kickoffs. Basically, the polar opposite of the other game we were talking about before the show, mm. Hyg, where your Canadian team was in minus, I think, 14 degrees Celsius in Edmonton against the Mexicans. I mean, come on. They only beat them 2-1 after, uh, after like, playing in the snow. Could, Should have been more than that, no? I mean, I, 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 I can spend about 10 minutes just talking about this, Mark. This is not, <laughs> this is not the CONCACAF show. I, I would, playing in the northernmost capital in an outdoor stadium in the middle of November, I think that's genius. But back to China, though. 
Wow. Yes. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I, I suppose you could say like a result against Australia, any result against Australia is, is great, but it's just, it just seems like too little too late. Yeah. They're sort of limping uh, to, 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 to missing out. Uh, to be honest, as expected, no one, no one was, was, was expecting that China was going to qualify out of these groups. The game itself was, was weird for a couple of reasons. Australia scored first and then the, the Chinese equalizer, it was a, it was a penalty from handball, but it was one of those ones with VAR where the 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 play no one had called for for no one had appealed for a handball no one had seen it the play had gone all the way up the other end Australia had an attack and then that had finished and then suddenly the 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 refs getting the word from from upstairs and we're thinking like well which where is it like what incident are they looking at and of course you know it was handball it was but it just disrupts the flow of the game the other thing that was super interesting is that there are about two thousand Chinese fans there now. Let me tell you, they don't all live in in the Middle East. Apparently, some of them flew in as far away as as Ethiopia. My guess is that this is coordinated. They're trying to, you know, this is technically a China home game, right? Right. right so right. they're trying to recreate some sort of home atmosphere, uh, but they don't want people going from China because then they'll have to risk them coming back to China, and they got the quarantine restrictions and the you know the the infection risk and all that sort of stuff. So they're basically taking like Chinese from around the world. And flying them in to uh, to to the you know to, <laughs> to the Middle East for the, for the China game. It's kind of crazy. With the Chinese men's World Cup campaign floundering once again, what better time to take stock of football development in China? Rowan Simons is a familiar figure in football in China. In 2009, he wrote Bamboo Goalposts: One Man's Quest to Teach the People's Republic of China to Love Football. He's also the chairman of Club Football Beijing. Club Football operates the largest independent grassroots football network in the capital region. Rowan, thank you so much for coming on the China Sports Insider podcast. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Back in 2015, you and Mark were on CCTV's sports scene to talk about China's then newly unveiled 50-point reform plan for football. You know, you were you were generally, you know, pretty positive about the reforms. Um, and I just want to play a clip from from the appearance. So the president has laid out a vision for what we should do, but actually to implement that is extremely hard. So we still have to deal with a lack of pitches, uh, with a lack of uh, coaching in schools. These are all very serious issues. But now, uh, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Land, uh, other authorities at every level across China have to address the issues. Before, they've failed to address those issues. Uh, so once again, I think it's a very historic move um, that portends very well for Chinese football. But the devil is in the detail and in the implementation. So, <laughs> so there's a lot there. So, so let's talk about let's talk about pitches uh, first. And and for me, this is a personal issue. You know, my stepdaughter, who's 15, she plays in this youth league, and they play twice a, twice a week in Shunyi, which is you know very far from where we live. And when we get there, the pitches are very small, and they play seven aside. So, so that's I guess a long way of asking whether you know more pitches have been built to develop grassroots in China since since you were on since 2015. Yeah, I mean that's um, probably the best place to start if you're looking for positives. Um, it's one of the easy things to do. You know, there are hard things to do in football, and there are easy things. The easy things are usually involve money. Uh, so if you've got money to throw at things, then building football pitches is quite easy. And there are significantly more football pitches in the country than there were back then. Uh, so that's been very positive, and not just public pitches, but in schools as well. Um, but it's much, much harder uh, to build the software 
so building the leagues and the communities that use those football pitches. Um, I think, you know, also some of the development of football pitches has not been very rational. Uh, a lot of it has uh, has resulted in, in many pitches in one area and still no pitches in other areas. Uh, so those pitches that have been developed often have you know, very close competitors. Uh, so neither of them operate at a profit. Uh, and of course, in, in northern China, the weather is a major impact. Um, you know, in winter, probably about three months, pitches can't be used. I think another point to mention there is that, you know, fives and sevens pitches have been a very big development, but there's actually, I think, less 11-a-side pitches than there were before. And some of the city operators that used to have 11-a-side pitches have now cut them up into fives and sevens. So, yes, more people are able to play. Pitches are closer to, to where they live, but probably not great in terms of developing China's ability to compete at 11-a-side, which is, of course, what they use in the World Cup. They don't play seven aside at the World Cup ever. That's that's just that's just not going to happen. There's futsal, um, but yeah, no World Cup. You really need to have eleven. So I think it's <laughs> it's harder and harder uh, to find eleven aside pitches. Rowan, do you think there's too much of a focus on numbers here? I mean, all the stories you see written about it is as you know, this many tens of thousands of of pitches built, and this many tens of thousands of academies, and this many millions of players you know, supposedly playing the game at different levels. Now, is it is it just the fact that these are targets that are never really achieved? It, or, or is it or is it something else? Um, well, I mean, we wouldn't really expect to see any results at international level for another good decade or so. I mean, if you're starting yep. with yep. Uh, four-year-olds and the average age is 24 for an international, that's 20 years away. Uh, so we're yep. only about five years in. Um, you know, the campus football project has introduced football into schools, whereas uh, always before sport wasn't really part of uh, the academic curriculum. Um, so yes, that does mean millions of kids are getting exposed uh, to football at an early age, which has got to be good. Uh, I think the issue there is that uh, very few sports teachers are actually trained as football coaches. Uh, and that's something that still needs to happen. So I think in a lot of cases, those sports teachers perhaps aren't making the best use of the football time uh, in a progressive way. In terms of sort of general public, I think, yeah, more pitches in more convenient locations means more people are getting out to play. But it's still quite a, a niche activity. You know, football, even even at the smaller sided level, is quite hard to organise. You, you need a, a large bunch of players if you're going to put together a team to play in a league, etc., uh, whereas I think basketball, probably, you know, two two against two, three against three can be quite an easy way to get going. So football needs a, a lot more organisation uh, to be run at a at a competition level. Uh, so, yeah, the numbers are good. I mean, I, I think there's a there's a problem with that in as much as football really needs to grow from the grassroots, which I, I've been repeating for, for more than 20 years. <laughs> but the campus football project immediately puts the state back in in control. If you've got kids who play football, a lot of time and effort is required to get them to the matches, a lot of travel, a lot of expense. But uh, campus football actually takes away responsibility from parents and puts it back on the state. Uh, so I think that's not had a greater impact in terms of developing people's own responsibility. Rowan, I, I distinctly remember when we were on that show mm. in 2015, right after the, the 50 point plan um, was announced and you know, you'd referenced, you've been talking about this for years. And then you said to me, 
this should feel like Christmas. Basically, everything that you had been <sighs> preaching uh, to anyone who'd listened was was being announced in this plan. So, what happened? Did uh, did you get your stocking full? <laughs> yeah, no, I remember that very clearly. I think I said it's Christmas and birthday all rolled into one. Yeah, um, it, it, it's a great plan. It's a fifty point plan. I mean, very detailed. Uh, the first part of it talks about the separation of the China Football Association from the government, yeah. which has been partially achieved. Uh, the second stage is about grassroots popularization of the game and the development of a small number of clubs who compete at the top level in Asia, which has been achieved, uh, albeit with imported players. And then only the long-term plans where they talk about you know, uh, hosting the World Cup, winning the World Cup, which I think was a mistake by international media, just focusing on China wants to win the World Cup. So the plan was right, you know, football people to run football, popularise the game, bring it into schools and develop from there. It hasn't happened uh, as the plan has laid out. Um, And I think there are a number of reasons. Probably the biggest one is short termism. Um, In in China, uh, government leaders tend to be in place for four years or five years. So they're really looking for results over that time frame. Uh, the business people, the tycoons that have vested into football, also looking for a very quick return on investment, uh, either financial or political. Um, but as we mentioned a bit earlier, this is a 20-year plan, a 30-year plan. So I don't think many people in China have the patience to really do it right from the grassroots. Let me play another clip from from that appearance. And, and you, you, you were asked, Rowan, about whether you thought the reforms would work. And here's what you had to say about that. You know, if anything, it just gives people a feeling that football has an opportunity to become the people's game, which it never has in China. Certainly within the plan, there are some very clear indications that the CFA must be opened up to stakeholders within the game. Uh, so certainly organizations like our own club football will be looking to play a more active role within the association. So has club football played a larger role in football development in China since, since that time? Um, well, we've rejoined uh, the Beijing Football Association, which is you know the regulator in charge of football in Beijing. Uh, and we've certainly made efforts to try and be more involved in some of the competitions they run. Um, but more or less, I think we're still pretty much an independent organization. Um, we work with a lot of schools. Those schools tend to be international schools or uh, bilingual schools or private schools rather than state schools. Uh, we run our own league competition um, for about 100 teams. I think there's about 25 teams from club football and the other 75 teams come from other clubs. So still more or less, I think it's an independent organization. But we are proud members of the Beijing FA. Um, we attend their meetings when, when they're held. Uh, and we're always available to to support uh, the wider game uh, within the official system. It is sometimes hard. I think the Ministry of Education is quite tough for us. Uh, they're obviously not that uh, they are responsible for youth football in China, but they're not you know directly linked into the football industry worldwide. Um, so that's been a bit of a tougher nut for us to crack. So I think more or less it's still independent we rely on the support of schools and on the support of parents uh, but we are members and therefore you know open and uh, and active in in terms of exchange within that uh, within that forum rowan you and i have talked um on several times previously about you know the the in terms of independence you know the independence of the the cfa the chinese football association 
and the supposed separation from the state, um, as mentioned in that in that fifty point plan. And you earlier you had sort of said, well, it's you know partly been achieved. Could you just expand on that a little bit? I mean, is it just a question of keeping FIFA happy because that's in their statutes? You, you know, or, or is it this is vital for the for the future growth of the game here in China? Yeah, I, I've kind of like revised my position on that. Uh, I mean, before. I mean, way back before the reforms happened, I think I was probably the only person who was stating in in state media uh, that FIFA rules demand that the government uh, remove itself from the CFA. But, you know, China is still China, isn't it? So if you were to completely separate, then you lose all kind of power and all kind of, of influence within society. So I think it does need a kind of like a hybrid model. Uh, a complete divorce leaves them... With, with no support from government at all. You know, the, the top two people at the CFA are both from the private sector. Uh, certainly the Secretary-General has a, has a background in sports. So I think, you know, some efforts have been made. But at the same time, there's still a lot of interference. So it's a tricky one. Uh, I, I can understand why a complete separation uh, would make it hard. You know, I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned earlier. Coaches at the school level not really using their time in the best possible way when they're when they're with their young players what 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 are the, some of the things that you've seen that leads you to say that well you know football is a specialist subject isn't it? It, it, it it's not a PE class I think without any kind of training at all the teachers just wouldn't be equipped to teach progression um, and also perhaps you know a lot of the experiences that come out of the football uh, system about games that you play with kids to encourage their their interest balanced between left and right foot. Um, I still think there is still an issue in China about the attitude of of coaches. Um, certainly at club football, everything's about encouraging the kids, being very upbeat, very positive. Uh, everyone's a winner, no one's a loser. And I think there's still, amongst some of the Chinese coaches, perhaps the older ones, uh, it's a worse situation. There's still rather sort of military attitude, uh, looking down at the kids shouting at the kids we have even seen in recent months some some you know awful reports of, of beating the kids you know this type of thing obviously has no place whatsoever in football I think there was there is a change and younger coaches are, are getting better I think just around the time of the reforms uh, there's a magazine called Beijing Football which is a state-run uh, magazine and on its front cover um, it featured a club football coach and one of our junior players and the club football coach was kneeling uh, and the the kid had his boot up on the coach's uh, knee and the coach was like rubbing his boots, which is quite a famous scoring celebration. And that for me very much summed up the difference in attitude, that the coaches could come down to the level of the kids, talk to the kids as equals. And so that was also a bit of a symbolic change of, of recognising that perhaps the European method of very positive, uh, very approachable, fun, uh, make it fun for everyone, inclusive type of coaching program is more healthy for kids. But it can be hard for older coaches to, to adapt to that. More generally, how would you say your optimism or pessimism has fluctuated, I suppose, over the years? Do you still feel the same passion? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the passion's still there for sure. I mean, I know football is a great solution uh, for China, for everyone, you know, not every child likes it, but if they do love it, it will be, you know, the best time of their week. It's still the best time of my week when I go out to play with some 
some old friends uh, not quite the speed of before <laughs> but I uh, still enjoy it immensely um, so I think yeah the principles are right the whole world has learned those principles over the last 120 years and China has to learn them too I think uh, I did an op- op-ed piece a couple of years ago in which I said that uh, more money has been wasted in these football reforms than in the history of sport and I think that's right because a lot of the money went in at the top end uh, you know, huge expense on foreign players, on foreign coaches. A lot of money did go into infrastructure. A lot of the professional clubs, you know, really improved their nutrition, the rehabilitation services, etc. So some of it went to the right areas, but a huge amount has been wasted. Uh, the hope in Chinese football is the same as it was before, which is parents. Uh, as a, a new generation of parents, they are obviously absolutely dedicated to their kids' development. Um, a lot of them really looking now at the traditional system uh, with its pressures of uh, homework, etc. I mean, even the government now has has recognised this with the uh, doubled reduction policy, trying to give kids more freedom and and space to play. So for us, always the hope in Chinese football is from parents uh, waking up to the, the benefits of the game. So that's a really interesting comparison that you make there. But it seems to me that until, you know, they still have that academic pressure with the Gaokao, right, the university entrance exam. And so do you notice an age at which kids basically drop off? We, we spoke to a, uh, to John House, who's looking at hockey development, and he said at a certain age, you know, 10, 12 or whatever, development just drops off. Like suddenly shit gets real basically for the parents and they're like, okay, let's, let's forget all these extracurricular stuff and get back to the academics because we still have this exam pressure. Yeah, uh, there is a, a huge drop off, uh, absolutely incredible sort of, cliff uh, that hits at 11 or 12 when as you say when they go to middle school we don't see that amongst our international students as much if they're playing football regularly by then they'll probably play it for the rest of their lives Uh, but sure for the for the Chinese kids it it drops off very very significantly Uh, this is again you know part of what we're trying to do at club football is to build real love for the game for the whole for whole of your life Um, so that's where our league system comes in so we have three levels um you know an entry level a skills league where the kids start to get a little bit of competitive practice and then moving into leagues where they're playing in regular competition so it's all about you know progressing the kids through the stages and and obviously trying to bring the parents along with but that's a massive massive problem uh, as you say in ice hockey in, in all sports in china yeah a huge drop off once they hit middle school. But, you know, now we see some reports that um, the Gaokao and some of the other exams will include sports um, points within within the total. And I think even some provinces are increasing uh, uh, the percentage of sports points towards exams. So that, that should help as well. Can I play one more clip? <laughs> I'm, I'm clip, I'm, I am clip mad here. Loves a bit of media. <laughs> I love media. Um, so you were you were both asked uh, in that in that interview. You were both asked whether you thought China would ever host the World Cup. And Mark, you pointed out that FIFA's rules prohibit any Asian country from hosting again until 2034 after Qatar. I think since then they've they've slightly given themselves an out, but things have potentially changed since then. I just just throw that in, but sure. I'll let you carry on. Okay, so so at the time, twenty thirty four was another nineteen years away, and Mark, you made the point that's probably enough time t- to get a team that's not going to embarrass themselves. Um, Roan, here is what you said. Yes, I think you know the World Cup has to come. Um, 
I in fact think that a China World Cup would benefit from FIFA um, deciding it many, many years ahead. Uh, and then China will start with kids of the age that would be able to participate in that World Cup. So a World Cup that's eight years ahead means they will focus on 14-year-old kids. It's not going to work. A World Cup throughout to, to 2034, but agreed much earlier, then you would see China actually uh, implementing a system from birth. Uh, and that's what we really need. So the longer the lead time to that World Cup, the better. So I'm going to ask you to speculate. Um, if FIFA announced tomorrow that China is awarded the 2034 World Cup. Is that enough time to develop the kind of talent you need to be competitive? I'm just trying to calculate now. <laughs> We're in 2021, 34, so 13 years later. 11-year-olds. So that means kids who are 11, and, and, and therefore the answer is no. Another cycle. Um, because if you start with kids at 11... Uh, their competitors in that World Cup will have been playing since the age of four. Uh, so on average, they're going to have about seven years <laughs> head start uh, on the Chinese kids. So, I mean, that'd be better than nothing. Um, but yeah, it's going to be longer than that. You talked earlier about the cycles of officials and so on. Who's going to be? Who's still going to be in those positions of power when the World Cup actually arrives? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Um I don't know, maybe you know, there'll be a, a bigger sort of national drive if they had that type of a lead time than the whole country. I mean, then there is no point focusing on your 16-year-olds who'll be too old for the World Cup when it arrives. <laughs> uh, so, so perhaps, you know, people will be bigger than themselves and stand up and, and support a, a nationwide plan. But I, I don't see that happening. I think politics at FIFA probably isn't that advanced either. Um, so it'll probably be the normal seven or eight years ahead. But, you know, 20 years has already been wasted. I, I always say to, to those sort of old timers I meet, you know, I've been talking about this for 20 years and we've been through four, five, six cycles of, of short-term leaders. Um, you know, if they'd started back when, when I first said it, we, we would now be there with a generation who are representing China. But, but you know, the, those opportunities have been missed and missed and missed again. Um, there's still an extent, you know, they just go around the wheel. In, in the 1950s, they sent all the young kids or the uh, the youth team to Hungary because Hungary was a pretty strong team at that time. In the 80s, they sent them to Brazil. And now they're sending them to uh, France and Portugal. Um, but the idea that you could take 16-year-olds who are not good enough to play in Europe and then send them to Europe to private schools in the kind of dream that maybe one of them would uh, find his scoring boots is just not going to happen but they go round and round in a circle because at least that type of, of of policy has the outside potential of maybe working whereas my call for a full generational change as you say absolutely will not work for the leader who's in position today so they tend to say uh, well thanks very much and uh, piss off now Rowan let's look at a more short-term realistic proposal barring a miracle um, China's not going to qualify for 2022, the Qatar World Cup. But with the expanded World Cup in 2026, there is a realistic chance. So, OK, say China gets in. It's not going to do well, but it does have that that glory, you know, that 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 national passion and, and getting people around that. How much could just qualifying for the World Cup in only the second time in its history, how much could that do for the game? Yeah, I, th I think... In general terms, that would be that would be rather good, wouldn't it? I mean, China would be delighted 
to take part. But I think within the football community, they're all very already very sceptical about these things. So there will be a sort of a lot of backlash saying, well, we only got in because they increased the numbers. Uh, and then when we got there, we still didn't score any goals or, you know, so I think people are quite cynical uh, about methods of, of getting into the World Cup when perhaps under a traditional system you wouldn't have uh, achieved it, like with the foreign players, etc. Um, but sure, I think yeah, if China did make it, that would be a be a big big thing. The World Cup's obviously always a huge thing in China. Uh, so to see China there, um, yeah, I think in the end they would they would embrace it. They would be happy and delighted to have joined the party even though it would have been a much lower entry barrier. I think, I mean, you know, you talk about China hosting the World Cup. I still think that they would be reticent about doing that because of the potential for loss of face. Do they really want to host the World Cup where they auto- automatically qualify and then get beaten in all three games? That would almost be intolerable. So I don't know whether or not they would make the decision to, to host it, which they could obviously do very easily and, and very well whether it might just be too risky in terms of the you know, the loss of face. Have you been watching the qualifiers? Yes, I have. I mean, I'm sort of really conflicted when, when China plays. On one side, you know, I'd love to see them do well. But on uh, on the other side, well, I mean, if they did well and got into the World Cup, that would be great for football, football development in China. But then on the other side, if they were by fluke or, you know, by some method managed to make it into it, then there's a real danger that everyone will say, ah, oh, problem solved. Um, the reforms have been a success. We no longer need to do any reforms. Whereas China still needs very deep grassroots reforms uh, and a different view of the people towards football as a participation sport and clubs as part of civic society. So I'm kind of conflicted. If they lose, I think, great. Uh, Everyone's going to be in the doldrums. There's still chance that reform might take place. And then, yeah, on the flip side, it would be great if China made it in. So, yeah, kind of watch it with a two faces (laughs) Rowan you talked about the risk there and the pressures involved for 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 those in charge at the high levels of football the the president here of course is known as a big soccer fan and and he has driven in in at least in part this this football drive that we've seen over the last few years there's two sides to that coin right It, it obviously brings a lot of increased attention to the game and gets some support but then of course the pressure to to succeed and the fear about failure where do you come out on that? Is is this generally a good thing, or or is it there's too much of the the the, the risks and the fear associated as well? Well, I think it has to be a good thing. I mean, you know, a president who supports football, who has led the development of a long term plan which makes complete sense, has forced by his own love of the game everyone in China to love the game and think about the game and care about the game. That's got to be positive, hasn't it? But yeah, it's the implementation again. It's um, Immediately after reforms came in, is what can I do to show President Xi that I'm a fan, uh, that I'm a supporter? So they bought the clubs, they bought in the foreign players, they won the Asian Champions League, they built pitches. So, you know, all these things can be done with money. Um, but the long term changing of attitudes to embrace civic society, to embrace communities and clubs and enjoyment and love of the game at the grassroots is is a much harder thing to do. So I'll just come back again and say it's all about the parents. Uh, As the parents, they're very highly educated now and I'm very positive about their their kids' development and more and more of them are turning to sport as a very healthy way 
for their kids, not just sort of um, physical health, but mental health and sociability and psychology. All of these things can benefit. So in the end, it will be a middle class in China, which is ironic because, you know, in the rest of the world, it was a workers game always rather than a middle class game. But in China, it's going to be a middle class game that, that people are looking for quality of life. Uh, and, and turn towards the game. It, it can't be forced from the top down. It has to come from the bottom up. So I think it, you know, in terms of what we see at club football, we when we started we were entirely foreigners, um, 100% foreigners. Now we're about 80% Chinese. So you know that's significant numbers of Chinese parents who are opening up to the the benefits of football as a participation sport and. And that, for me, is always the hope. It still is the hope. And you know, seeing those kids out there enjoying the game is what keeps us going. Well, I'm glad we could end on a high note. Rowan Simons is the chairman of Club Football Beijing and the author of Bamboo Goalposts, One Man's Quest to Teach the People's Republic of China to Love Football. He joined us from his home in Beijing. Thanks, Rowan. That was really fun. Thanks a lot. That was Rowan Simons. We talked to him earlier this week. I, what I thought was really interesting were some of the parallels between what he was saying uh, and what John House was saying last week on the show about, about hockey parents and about some of the um, abuse that, that he's seen in the coaching ranks. Uh, Mark, what do, you, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, I guess it's not surprising that, that some of the same things do exist. And, and again, we don't want to dwell on the negatives. Like, like I think both... Both John and Rowan have said that things have improved over the time they've been here. But some of this sort of, you know, more military coaching style that's been instilled in the older coaches, unfortunately, still lingers, um, even though it is improving. It was funny because when he finished, I was about to say, you know, I don't want to I want to finish on a on a on a negative note. You know, I think it's it's sometimes too easy when you when you look at Chinese football, even, you know, many the many people that I speak to passionately foreign or Chinese want Chinese football to succeed, but some of the missteps that have been taken make it hard to do that. And it can be quite frustrating. But and I was going to say, you know, what's the one thing that, that, that you're most optimistic about? Just just to, you know, turn it around back to, you know, let, let's always try and be hopeful and optimistic and positive. And, and, and he already did that. You know, I think it's the love of the game. You know, not everyone loves it, but but you know, billions of people do love the sport. There's a reason why it's called, you know, the beautiful game, the global game. Um, it, it's it's awesome. So, you know, that's why Rowan and, and literally billions of other people have got into the sport. And, and, and hopefully, and we all still hope, I think that can be the case here. That's the show this week. If you like the show, the best way to help out is to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us, leave a comment. You can find us at subchina backslash podcast or search for China Sports Insider Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to get in touch, the best way is probably Twitter. Mark, where can people find you? Yeah, Twitter at Dreyer China. That's D-R-E-Y-E-R China. And yeah, we'd love to hear from people. Uh, w- tell us what you think about the show. Uh, what do you want us to talk about? Uh, it's been really encouraging to, to get some positive feedback so far. But uh, things you don't like, things you do like. If you want to come on the show, hey, uh, we'll see what you have to say. So um, any feedback, uh, gratefully received. Absolutely. And I am at twitter.com slash Hygbalian, H-A-I-G-B-A-L-I-A-N. I feel like I need to spell that every time. We will see you next week. Thank you.